1: i <music>
2: all right welcome back to another installment of the wide right podcast i'm manny navarro miami hurricanes beat writer for the athletic it's tuesday october 11th about 1 15 p.m carlos Leto of the mia all day podcast is back with me the hurricanes are now two and three following a tough to swallow 27 to 24 loss to north carolina at home a game that um I, not, I thought Miami was going to lose going into the game, Carlos. And in the end, um, you know, they fell behind early and it cost them uh, the way that they played defensively early in the game. And, and the offensive struggles in the red zone, uh, well covered by everybody there, well covered by the fan base on social media. Um, I guess my theme for this podcast, Carlos, is Uh, what are fair expectations for Miami moving forward? This is a team that began the season uh, number 16 in the preseason. They got up to number 13 before they lost to Texas A&M and and were on this three-game losing skid. And, uh, you know, the fan base is angry. They, they, They think that for the $80 million they're spending on Mario Cristobal and all the assistant coaches, what they're making, all the analysts, that this is inexcusable. They shouldn't be two and three after five games. I think... I think personally, uh, you know, I spent I wrote an entire column saying Mario's the right guy. Give him time. Uh, it just came out in The Athletic today, this morning. Um, you know, obviously, I think we all go in with expectations for a certain team thinking, you know, Miami, because they have Tyler Van Dyke back at quarterback. Uh, they're going to come out and they're going to play great. And, and you know, the coaching staff is going to make the changes. The, the coastal division stinks. So they're just going to cruise. They're going to they're going to win. But we never really take into account you know, how every coach, it's it seems like, or nearly every coach in college football, uh, has a tough transition period when they first take over. Um, I guess your thoughts, Carlos, on the overall theme and where the hurricanes are today.
0: Well listen, Manny, I'm I'm trying to make an appearance today as Sebastian the Ibis. I uh, <laughs> I am not I'm not appearing as myself today because this is I, I I might have jinxed this team and and I'm trying to do whatever I can to bring the mojo back. So I've got the Sebastian. I'm trying to see if this works if this rally cap here brings us back but this is very hot and uncomfortable so I'm taking it off all
2: right going back
0: to my all right so um you know it it's funny i think if you flip the middle tennessee result this team is probably pretty much right where you might expect them to be this season i think if they had beaten middle tennessee 45-24 um and had lost to carolina and texas a&m and, and were sitting at 3 and 2 and 1-1 in the conference you'd be like okay you know, it's more or less where I anticipated them being. Maybe I anticipated them being 4-1 and one with only loss of Texas A&M. But I understand we're still rebuilding. We're still getting towards where we want to be. Mario doesn't have a full set of recruiting classes yet. He hasn't built the foundation of, of the program and the talent pool the way he wants to do it in his own image. So, you know, it's going to take some time. And, you know, a tough loss to UNC after a TBD threw for 500 yards, all those things I think you would be okay. You know, you wouldn't be falling, wanting to fall off a cliff. However, because they played the way they played against Middle Tennessee, and it showed sort of the – it gave you a backdoor look. It peeled back the curtain as to what's going on within the psyche of this team, where they are still not fully gone from the days of uh, of, of Manny Diaz or even their, their, their dark days and their Mark Rick towards the end. This team has still got some psychological issues, some mental issues, some hurdles that they haven't overcome yet on preparation – um coming to games prepared being ready to play at the jump and really taking care of business when it counts because if they had been they would be you know 3 and 2 right now and and we wouldn't be so disgusted after three losses in a row which by the way and this is the 19th season the hurricanes have been in the ACC right right this is now the 12th season that they've had a three game losing streak a minimum three game losing streak 12 yeah. out of 19 seasons they've been in this conference they've had a three game losing streak which to me is insane. Do you know how many times between 2003, the year before they got to the ACC, back to 1983, they had a three-game losing streak?
2: How many times? Three. Different, so, era, different era of Hurricanes football, Carlos.
0: Exactly. And that's and that's the, the thing. How do we go from that to this? And I think part of it is, um, you know, I think Miami football sold its soul sometime in the 70s to be able to get the undefeated season the <laughs> Super Bowls then land Dan Marino and get the, the five national championships for the hurricanes. And now we're having to reap the benefits or uh, not the benefits, but reap the back end of that contract. Right. Is slowly sucking the souls out of all of us every Saturday and Sunday while we watch TV. Um, it, and I'm going to make another reference here. And I think you're not going to get it because I know you're not a big Harry Potter fan, but the head coaching job of Miami has become like the defense against the dark arts position at Hogwarts. Whoever <laughs> takes it is cursed. This is incredible. You've got 20 years and different head coaches, and guys coming into the job, and you're getting the very same results almost. So, it, at some point, it needs to turn around. I didn't expect this team to be undefeated this season. I thought, like you said, because of Tyler Van Dyke coming back, because of how they finished the season last year, they could be 10-2. and two. I felt maybe 9-3 and three was probably more realistic, because they always drop a game that you don't expect them to drop. Now, you didn't expect that to be middle Tennessee. You thought it might have been like Virginia or something like that. Um, but at some point, it, it needs to get turned around, and you know, the good news is they fought and they, they got to the end. But again, it's like we're saying the same shit we say every year. You know, they fought hard. They they lost at the end. And it's it's a repeat of last year. And you look at this team and what is appreciably better this season than last season? And that's my big question.
2: Yeah, I mean, they're not running the ball better. Um, I guess they're tackling a little bit better than they were. Not – not. I mean, listen, compared to what it was, last year was pretty horrible. I would say right about now they're average yeah. um, when it comes to tackling. Um they're giving up more big plays, it feels like, in the passing game than they did a year ago, as bad as they were. I still think that they're giving up more big, explosive plays. Um, And then Tyler Van Dyke, I mean, until this last game, really had struggled with the passing game. So they had they had sort of gone a downgrade in that regard as well. So, But I think the one thing we have to always take into account here, Carlos, is how different is the roster? In all honesty, uh, how many of those recruits and transfers – have really upgraded this team. Like Akeem Mezador clearly is it was a huge pickup for them. He's one of the best defensive linemen in the country, according to pro football focus, the way he's graded out. Um, but is he having a a Jalen Phillips type season? No. Uh Gregory Rousseau type season? No. Um and then, you know, guys like Tyreek Stevenson, I think, are playing injured. They had a, a groin injury, right? That he's that he's kind of playing through, I think. Um, not playing his best. Um, Daryl Porter Jr. just got on the field now in this in this last game, really started to play. Um Colby Young got in for the end of this game and you know, showed us, hey, look, there's the there's the guy that can go up and get the ball, right? Uh the, the one that we talked about in the offseason. And then now, because of injuries, you're basically forced to play two Oregon offensive linemen. Um, before that, it was the same group of offensive linemen that we've seen here. John Campbell's finally healthy. He's in at left tackles. Zion Nelson has been out. I think that's affected the offensive line as a whole. Um, when we can go up and down the roster, really all you did was lose your two best receivers and Mike Harley and um, Charleston Rambo, and you didn't really replace them with anything, right? I mean, there's no bona fide number one guy. Uh, the running game? They were injured last year. They were banged up yeah. last year. All you did was add Henry Parrish, who's basically replaced Jalen Knighton, right? Because Jalen Knighton has been a disaster so far. I mean, between the injuries, the fumbles, uh, basically you traded Jalen Knighton for a guy who's just like him. Uh, so, less well, explosive. Yeah. I, I just, so so to me, it's like, okay, where where's the changes in the personnel? Like, where are the, where are the players? Where's the improvement as well? Like, who's gotten better? Right. Um, those are the questions you always ask yourself the first year. But, but I cautioned it all by saying, and you pointed this out several weeks ago. Jimmy Johnson went eight and five his first year at Miami, coming off of a national championship season. Yeah. Um, I went and I did the research. Go check out my article on theathletic.com. I looked up every title winning coach um, since 2000. Okay. And when they took over at a new place, what they inherited in terms of a record. And what they did their first year. We're gonna go. I'm just gonna review this quickly, Carlos, and then we'll get we'll oh. let you talk. Um, the last champion, Kirby Smart at Georgia. First he took over a program that was ten and three for Mark Rick. They went eight and five in his first year. Thirteen and two reached the title game in year two. But they didn't win a championship until their sixth season. And oh, by the way, I would say this pretty confidently the roster that he got at Georgia is probably a lot better than what Mario Cristobal got here at Miami. So people who are like, whoa, Mario should get to the ch- title game in year two. Is this a title contending roster right now? Oh, no. I, I, I know they're 13th in the 247 talent composite, but no. Um, Ed Orgeron at LSU, he took over an eight and four program. His first year, he went nine and four. His next year, he went 10 and three. When did he win the national championship and go 15 and over Joe Burrow? Year three. Dabo that's Sweeney. That's- <laughs> what, what's that? Then it fell
0: off a cliff and he fell into a co-ed's
2: Right. And that's that's basically what you got to watch out for, right? You got to be able to maintain it. Dabo Sweeney, um, he was an interim coach before he was officially hired as a head coach. They went seven and six his interim season, nine and five his first year, six and seven his second year. Um, they didn't win the national title to his eighth season. That, to me, is a little bit more comparable to Miami, probably, in terms of where they were talent-wise and where Miami is talent-wise. Um Here's the one everybody's going to say, oh, no, this is the example. This is why Urban Meyer took over a six and seven program at Ohio State. They went 12 and 0 his first year. They didn't win the national championship because they were ineligible. They went 12 and 2 his second year, and they won the championship in his third year. Jimbo, Florida State, he was on staff. Seven and six, he inherited a, a Bobby Bowden program. Was seven, by the way, he was a part of it, okay? He was the offensive yeah. coordinator. Yeah. Ten and four his first year. Nine and four his second year didn't win the national title till his fourth year. Gene Chizik at Alabama at uh, Auburn five and seven is what he inherited. He went eight and five his first year. Then he got Cam Newton who was the best player in college football went fourteen and zero in year two. Yeah, it's again, like again SEC school that has NFL caliber talent, right? Same thing as what you can say about Kirby Smart. That's why they got to the title game quickly. It's not that tough of a turnaround I would say in the SEC. Um Nick Saban, year 1, you inherit a 6 and 7 program, go 7 and 6 with a loss to Louisiana Monroe in the process. Next year 12 and 2. They lose they lose to the Gators SEC title game. Wins the wins the uh, national title in year 3. Les Miles, LSU, 9-3, inherits a 9-3 program at LSU. Again, another SEC program, always loaded with talent. Goes 11-2 his first year, 11-2 his second year, wins national title in his third. Now, he just got a program that had won a national championship a couple years before with Saban. Um Miami's had one 10-win season since joining the ACC. Um, all right, and we'll stop here because I'm not going to go all the way back, but Urban Meyer. Okay, he takes over at Florida, seven and five program. They go nine and three in his first year, thirteen and one win the national title in his second year. Again, another SEC program. Urban Meyer was a ridiculous recruiter. And
0: oh Ron Zook recruited his ass off too. So it wasn't that uh the
2: it, talent. Right, right. So I guess, you know, look, those are just the, the most recent ones. You can check out the whole chart there. But essentially, like
0: Again, I'll, I'll give it. I'll give it to you in one sentence, Manny. It's it's the Billies and Joes, not the X's and O's. You can't and like I keep saying, you can't make chicken salad out of chicken shit. So there's you have the one of the greatest coaching staffs in college football. It's proven. You have a bunch of guys that are proven, and if you're getting these kind of results, then what is what is the other factor? Then what is the other variable? And you have to look and be honest. And I know we love these players because we've followed them since high school, and we love their huddle tape, and we've watched them on seven on seven. And the whole shit.
2: But at the end of the day, we have to admit these guys aren't that good. They're not. There's and there's not enough of them either. Well, one one guy made the NFL off of last year's team in terms of draft being drafted. One guy off of last year's seven and five team, and that was John Ford. Um and, Charleston Rambler didn't even get drafted. Um and all
0: that would be acceptable and reasonable, except for Middle Tennessee. That's the one that really is the biggest flaw in this whole season in this rebuild is that one stinker of a game is really going to change the perception of this season. Yeah. I, and also the outcome. Cause they get, that's going to pull them down to either seven and five or six
2: and six. Correct. Now I will say this, I, I did feel like coming off of this, this performance and we did get a chance to talk. I, by the way, I love Kevin Steele uh, just as a human being. Okay. There's certain coaches you get to talk to a little bit that you start to develop a good relationship with. Cause they're just good people. Kevin Steele is a good person. Um, You know, he's very personable, puts things in a very, you know, sort of human context. I led my story with this. This is a guy who coached with Tom Osborne for five years before Nebraska finally won the national title. Uh, Won three of four. Okay, three three, three titles in four years from 94 to 97. He was there on that staff that finally broke through and won a national championship in 94. Um, Then he went to be with Nick Saban at the beginning at Alabama. Then he went to Dabo Sweeney with Clemson, was a defensive quarter for three years. And everybody's like, well, he got fired. He got embarrassed in the Orange. We well, gave up 70 points. Okay. But he was around these guys. Okay. He was with them. He was with Bobby Bowden. He said flatly to me and to a few other people we were chatting with yesterday. He's like, Mara's the guy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here at Miami if I didn't believe that. And he sees the traits that are necessary. And I know fans are like, oh, you're just kissing Mario's ass, right? Your reporter kissing. I have no reason to kiss. You think I get any special access from Mario? Oh, no. You think I'm getting some great stories? That's that's I'm covering this team as an objective reporter. That's the way I always been. Um, I have always felt that because of his recruiting prowess, that ultimately that is what wins at Miami. It's the guy who recruits his ass off and brings the talent in here. And go back and it feels like a, a a proven formula to all this, right? Like Howard got some really good players took him five years, but he got some really good future NFL type players on that roster, Eddie Brown and, and uh, Jim Kelly and, and, you know, Bernie Coles like those guys played in the NFL for a long time. There are other guys from that first roster. Go look at Jimmy. Jimmy was the best at it of anybody. Um, he had issues with his coordinators. Things didn't work. Defense sucked. Um, Erickson came in. He kept getting really good players to come to Miami. Butch, when, when you had the big turnaround, it's because Butch knew how to identify players. How many times was he called out for being a terrible coach, game day coach? Miami won because they overwhelmed teams with talent. Alabama wins because they overwhelm teams with talent. Clemson has won the ACC because they've got more talent than anybody else. It's not hard to figure out why the same teams win the championship every single year, right? Like if Wake Forest all of a sudden was winning national titles and Dave Clawson was doing it with a bunch of three stars, then none of this shit would matter. We we could all sit here and laugh and say recruiting doesn't matter, but it does. It completely matters. And player development matters. And so Mario has that skill in my mind. Like go look at what Oregon has right now. On that roster, right? They're five and one. Dan Landing got his ass handed to him by Georgia in, in, in the hey, first game this? of the season. They've won five in a row. Why? Because they're they're good. They've got talent on that team. So I can't say the same about Miami. And and yes, you can say they're thirteenth. What are you talking about? Look at all these recruits. No, no. Lonzo Heisman's here because he knows there's no talent on this roster. His job is to help Mario get those players.
0: Yeah, and development and recruitment takes time. So obviously this is not the year where you're going to see the full plan come to fruition. Yes, we got a ton of transfers in the portal, um, but those aren't necessarily maybe Mario's top choices. If they were coming out of high school, I don't think he'd necessarily recruit those same guys over. Some of them are exceptions, obviously. Daryl Jackson and and Moultrie and things like that. Other guys are there because they're better than what we had on the roster, not necessarily the kind of guy or profile that Mario would normally chase. At the end of the day, also, it's recruiting – players like we said a million times not just for the talent but for the cultural and personality fit and the mindset fit the guys they have on this team yes they may be rated four stars they may be blue chippers they may be, they may be the best south florida has to offer in some areas but at the end of the day if they don't match up with the culture and the mindset and they're not the right type of guy that can handle adversity then at the end of the day that's not the guy you want on the roster and that's going to take time to filter out i think you're probably going to see a big exodus at the end of the year, and a roster turnover again through the portal while we supplement it with recruiting classes to try and get to that next level and at least compete for a Coastal championship. Well, there won't be a Coastal next year, but get in the ACC title game. Um, I don't think it's going to happen this year, obviously, but I think it's it's going to take time. But again, I think people would be a lot more patient if we had flipped, if that Middle Tennessee result had flipped and Miami had won that game in that, in that you know strong of a fashion and that convincing of a fashion as opposed to losing it. And it it sort of, you know, coming in with all this hype and the the expectations with this coaching staff, I think a lot of fans were sort of taken aback by having that kind of a result. Um, And they lost a little bit of patience. This North Carolina game, I thought they played well. I thought they played tough. I thought they had a chance. They obviously had a chance to win at the end. There were obviously mistakes they made, things where they shot themselves in the foot that gave them uh, less of a chance to win at the end. But I think it was something where you wanted to see them be competitive and not get smoked like they did in 2020. Like some people were predicting. Um yeah,
2: I was. <laughs> I was worried. I, I picked Duncan out win by two touchdowns. And I said it honestly, I thought, you know, they would keep it close by giving it by two touchdowns.
0: And uh, you know, and you they gave us a result that we were hoping hoping for, and then but didn't come up with the final result that we wanted. Again, moral victories aren't gonna get it done, but at the end of the day, there's there's a a process that Mario's gonna follow. He's got a plan at the very least. You know what that plan is, he's made it very obvious. He's communicated it to everyone. But at the end of the day, we're still allowed to be frustrated by the results up until it gets to that point where we're no longer frustrated and we're happy.
2: Well, I'll say this. um, You know, Josh Gaddis said something in the press conference that I think got a lot of people worried, which was we, we threw the ball too much, right? It's way too much to throw the ball. I think he's right. To win. And he's right. And he's right. And, you know, one of my readers at The Athletic Um, You know, responding to some comments um, in in the comment section said, you know, run play uh, run pass ratio. Okay, but for some other schools, UGA 50 50 Bama 46 54. They run the ball more than they throw it. Clemson uh, 49 51 run the ball more. Ohio State 44 56 run the ball more Um, Miami right now. 57 43. Uh, pass past past the run ratio. Um and go back and look at last year with Lashley, same thing. Couldn't run the ball. Um you got seven and five. There's and, and a people, reason there's a reason Mario went out and got five offensive linemen already in this class.
0: And why does gotta say that you need they need to run the ball more run more effectively, to be honest? Mm-hmm. Why is that important? Okay, so let's take a look at every third and fourth and less than three that the Hurricanes had against North Carolina. There was 10 situations, right? That it was either third and three or less, or fourth and three or less. How many times do you think they got a first down out of those 10 opportunities? Twice. Twice. Did you see this? Did you read this ahead of time? Damn you.
2: No, I just thinking back to the game in my head, right. I thought of two situations where that happened.
0: You, you just want a beautiful mind on me. You're Russell Crowe. What the hell? Where did you pull that <laughs> up? But yes, two out of 10 in those situations. And that's why being able to run the football matters. Not only that, but if you look at the top 10 scoring offenses, in terms of points per game, in college football, how many of them do you think run for over 200 yards a game? Seven. Eight.
2: Okay. How nice. many of them do you
0: think throw for over 300 a game? One or two. Four.
2: Four. But okay. as you can see,
0: it's, 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 it's there's, there's a balance to this. You need to be able to run the ball to be an effective offense. Having Tyler Van Dyke throw for 496 and three touchdowns, yeah, that looks great, but what was the end result? You got another loss. And it's because you need to be able to grind wins out when it counts. And I'll give you the flip side of that. Yeah, Drake May is amazing. He was throwing the ball over the field. He had a couple mistakes, which, by the way, were because the front four were providing pressure, like I said, they needed to. But I'm not going to get to that right. Anyway, so, yes, Drake May can throw it all over the field. He's the guy, if you're going to put the ball in anybody's hands, as far as a quarterback's concerned, I'll give it to that guy all day. Let him throw it in any situation. But what did North Carolina do after Jalen Knighton's fumble? They went on the 12-play Eight-minute drive and they ran it down Miami's throat. All they got was a field goal, but they killed clock and they secured the victory. Essentially forcing Miami to have to kick an onside kick because there wasn't enough time on the clock for them to get two real possessions.
2: Yeah, it was actually eighteen plays, eighty-one yards. Because I remember typing that in, um, and, and a lot of third and nine, third and eleven conversions that Drake May just made good plays, and that's why you know people are like, "Why don't you have his baby?" Right? When I was tweeting in the middle of the game, they're like. Why don't you just have his child? Because you're, you're obviously just sucking this guy off. And I'm like, I don't know. Yes, he threw two interceptions against Miami, but he's still an animal. Like, this guy is unbelievable talent. And he made the plays that needed to be made. Yes, did he throw the ball up, uh, you know, to, to his receiver there near the end zone? Yeah, he did. But he also knew where the defense was as he was making that play with Akeem Mesidor draped all over him. And
0: he was that's staring what, the guy
2: down the whole time. That that's That's what great quarterbacks do. They make the play. And so, to me, Miami held their own in the second half against one of the better quarterbacks in the league. Um, You know, Kevin Steele talked about how really the the pressure that they brought just up the middle to close down those running leagues. They made the adjustments to shut down the run and basically told the edge rushers, go as hard as you can in the second half around the corner to create pressure on him, but defensive tackles, if you guys don't push those linemen back into his face, he's going to take off and run, and that's what happened. He couldn't run. And he got sacked four times in the second half, hit eight times in the second half because they made the adjustments. So to me, that was a super encouraging sign for this defense as bad as that game started for them. And it was 21 seven, you know, late in the first half, um, on the two field goals. And so that's the kind of progress that you need to see against good competition. North Carolina has a great offense. They just have a great offense. You have to give it to them. They have a great offense. It's the one thing that's been consistent since Mac Brown has been there. Um, so on the flip side, the offensive breakdowns near the red zone, I get it. You got to be able to punch the ball in. But again, this goes to the offensive line. Does Miami have Zion Nelson on the field? No. Did they have their do they have the kind of offensive line to run the offense that Gaddis wants? No. And that's the challenge. That's the hard part because he wants to establish a run. He wants to give those linemen the benefit of the doubt and say, go out there, do your job. Um, but it's just not happening. And so you have that's to make adjustments.
0: My, my whole thing is I think Gattis called a really good game. Now, um, I will say people are coming out and saying that Gattis ran formations he never ran before, and he adjusted the offense, and he changed it. That's bullshit. It's the same offense, guys. He's been running the same formations, the same shit. You just choose to see it through a different lens because TBD was actually completing passes and was accurate. Um, the people were saying he was playing with more pace, that they were going more no-huddle quicker. They went a little bit quicker only because in the first half, for the most part, they weren't checking back to the sideline for secondary plays.
2: So they did that, they still was, did that a lot in the game. They still did yeah, a they, lot.
0: In the second half, they did. Yeah. The second half, they did. Um, but that's why I looked faster. But at the end of the day, my only complaint about Gattis was that goal line stand where they got stuffed, And that's because first down, you don't get anything. You know you've been struggling running the ball, right? Second, you know it's four down territory at that point. I don't run a quarterback sneak with TBD for two reasons. Number one, um, I'm not sure you're going to get the push to get him in the end zone to begin with. Number two, you don't want to get this guy hurt after he's finally gotten hot and has the offense going. So you don't want to put him at risk, right? And number three, why do you take the ball away from your best ball carriers in that situation? Um, To me, if you're going to be – if you know it's four-down territory, you're going to go for it on fourth down, at some point either on second or third down you have to attempt play action and try and get the ball in the end zone through the air. And they waited for fourth down, and I, I have no idea what the hell that call was. A fake reverse tight end throwback on the goal line <laughs> that shit was like what seriously are we doing this it took 45 minutes to develop no wonder tbd yeah. got through threw it.
2: that's a fair criticism i think there are several plays in this offense that take way too long to develop and i think that's one one aspect that he needs to change because when he's in third and short situations you can't have sort of this delayed ha- handoff to the to the running back like Give it, you know, give it to the fullback. Bring the fullback in there and give him the ball. Do something different that the defense is not expecting. It's it seems very um expected, everything that he's calling, right? In those in those short yardage and tight type of uh, situations. In the end, the offensive line has to has to move people, and they're not. And I yeah. think a lot of it just has to do with the fact that their offensive line is below average. And, and look, it's not a surprise. Like Zion Nelson is your best offensive lineman, right? That's what most people believe. He's a three-star kid that they got out at the last minute. They they stole from Appalachian State. Um, John Campbell, you know, a three-star kid out of the Orlando area. Um, you know, DJ Scaife was a four-star kid down here, but are there really any four-star linemen in, in South Florida? <laughs> um, I, I, you know, again, like, it, it, he's doing the job in the recruiting trail. He's gone out and he's gotten guys um, that he believes in. Inez Cooper, he, he swears he's going to be a star. I wouldn't be surprised this week if an S. Cooper starts uh, just because of, you know, kind of the struggles that other guys have been having moving people at the line of scrimmage. Um, so, you know, look, I think as long as they go into Virginia tech this week and take care of business, they're, they're supposed to be eight point favorites. I think they're better than Virginia tech having seen Virginia tech and and what just happened to them against Pittsburgh and the 300 yard rusher. And you know, they gave up in the week before getting killed by, by North Carolina, um, you know, Pittsburgh's got a good team, but they don't have an elite offense like North Carolina, and and they still had a good day. So I think Miami. It's not an easy game ever to play up there. I hate going to Lane Stadium. You have the. Uh, have you been to Lane Stadium, Carlos? Uh, no, thank God,
0: I have not. There's there's, a, uh, there's no reason for me to go up there.
2: There's it, it, it's terrible. They've got the uh, you know the the uh, the turkey noise that they do between every like success. The thing is like...
0: other other than enter Sandman at the beginning of the game, everything else in that place we might have heard is terrible.
2: It's 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 it just drives you crazy, and so um, it's not an easy place to play. It's homecoming for Virginia Tech. They they're two and four. They're going to be up for this game. They're going to be up because they look at Miami. Checkers like, well, these guys are two and three. We can beat them.
0: Yeah, not only know. have to listen any game from now on, no matter who the opponent is, based on the fact that we lost to Middle Tennessee. There's no guarantees.
2: Right. Right. But if Miami shows up and does his job, which I expect them to do, and, and by the way, I think their next three games are also against first year head coaches, right? What well, you're about to say. Yeah, that. And I think
0: their next three games are very winnable. I know Duke was playing well early on, but I think they've shown that they're beatable. They're not, they're not, you know, at that level yet where you consider them a real contender for the coastal. Right. I think Duke is beatable. I think you can go into Florida State at five and three. And if you do that, then that's the measuring stick game, right? Now you've gone past halfway th- through the season, you've had enough time to really coach these guys up to find your identity as a team. You're on a three-game winning streak after a three-game losing streak. Now it comes down to your biggest rival. How do you perform? How Do you do? You take it to the next level and show that you're a competitor in this league? And at the end of the day, it's really going to be about these, these cross-division uh, matchups to see if they can get into the Coastal and say the ACC championship because right. they're already down a loss. They, they got to hope that Wake Forest and North Carolina State beats North Carolina because uh, I don't see Car- Carolina losing to any of these other teams in the conference. They might, obviously, because... You know, the ACC is crazy. So is the Coastal. The Coastal is batshit crazy. We never know what's going to happen. But it looks like it's going to be these cross-divisional games that are going to make a difference. And we're kind of stuck with Florida State and uh, and Clemson. I mean, Florida State is beatable, obviously, because we're rivals. So it's it's going to be a tough game no matter what. But that Clemson game is going to be monstrous.
1: Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone?
2: All right. I, I want to get to the mailbag. We got a lot of mailbag questions here. Well, uh, A few. When, whenever we record this in the middle of the afternoon, I kind of send out a late alert. People are people are a little tardy sometimes. Yeah, um, you don't want
0: to answer 67 questions. That's a good move by you. That's a bad move right there.
2: All right. <laughs> this is from Jason, J underscore HUD111. How do you see the Canes finishing out the season? Is it better or worse than what you expected two weeks ago? Um, I think they're going to finish better than what I expected because I told you four and eight or five and seven. Yeah. Um, with the effort that we saw against Middle Tennessee State. Uh, I, right now, I think they're they're a bowl team. Does that mean they're six, seven, or eight wins? I guess it just depends on whether they show up to beat Georgia Tech, whether they show up to beat Florida State, whether they show up to beat uh, Pittsburgh at the end of the season. I think they're somewhere between six to eight wins right now. I don't think they're going to beat Clemson. Clemson looks like a very, very good team. It's a big ask for them to win on the road. Now, if they were to do that, then I think all of a sudden Miami fans would probably feel a lot better about this staff. Yeah. They're able to somehow finish the season winning seven in a row. And then, you know, even if they don't get into the ACC championship game, I think the feeling would be, okay, they, this this coaching staff is good. I don't think that's going to happen. I think they'll probably a six to eight win team somewhere in there. But I do think they're a bowl team because they're good enough to be a bowl team. Yeah, um, I
0: agree. And, you know, a couple weeks ago I said, you know, while you were dropping four and five wins and making my heart stop, I said seven and five, six and six, based on what we saw. Right now, to me, they look like a seven and five team. I think they're a five and three team in conference, but we'll see if they can turn this thing around. Like we said, if they get momentum now against Virginia Tech and beat Florida State, then there's a chance they could end up in that eight and four range.
2: All right. This is from Brandon BC Mantilla on Twitter. Why has the running game regressed so much from where it was the first few games? Is it a product of more stacked box looks given from the defense or more a technique issue reverting to old habits? I think it's a combination of those things. I think there's no question teams know, first of all, they know what Miami's running. Okay. And I think they've tried to run a couple of different combinations to get the running game going. Um, I also think, and, and Gary Furman from Kane Sport uh, raised this question uh, to in the today our guys worn out after the Texas A&M game. That was such a physical slugfest. Um, and then you lost Zion, right, in that game. Our guys just, their body physically worn and they're not getting the same amount of push. I think there's certainly something to that, um, that, that, you know, physically, um, you know, your mentality, it's tough to, to say hey, you're going to go out there and, and, and push teams around, which is why Mario is attacking the offensive line recruiting yep. so hard.
0: It, it because like we said, it doesn't just require talent, it requires the right mentality. And you can you can say, Yeah, shit, damn, they must be broken down after that Texas and M game and you know bodies are worn down. What the hell guys go through in the SEC? And yeah. so why are SEC teams able to run the ball on a consistent basis week in, week out, going against the best best in the country? It's because not only are they talented, but they have the right mindset and that's what they do. They're dogs. And if you don't have dogs up front, you're not gonna get dog like results, and that's what's been happening recently. It's easy to get up for one game and ball out, DJ Ivy, and then the rest of the season look <laughs> <laughs> look completely average. Right. Um, I think the other thing, like you were saying, it is schematic. I think teams are understanding what Miami wants to do, which is to stop us from one first, and they're selling out because they feel like Tyler Van Dyke wasn't playing well. Um, they were giving Tyler Van Dyke all that. They, they didn't play any complex coverages on the back end, North Carolina. They right. played cover three most of the game, and then switched to cover two a little bit, and let Tyler find the open holes in the zone. And, and they just sold out on stopping the run. And that was mm-hmm. their main focus. Because they knew eventually the game was going to come down to the wire. And if Miami had a lead, they weren't going to be able to hold on to it. Because they couldn't run the clock out.
2: Right. I, I, look, they, they got to run the football. I think he's, he's absolutely right. Um, you know, that you can't just throw it 50-something times. And unfortunately, establishing that mentality takes time. Think about it. All of last year. That wasn't the mentality. The mentality was we got to run a fast-paced offense. We got to throw it a ton. And that's the the offensive lineman that he inherited here.
0: Yeah, Um, they got to have the willingness to play that physical style of football. Maybe some of these guys don't have that willingness.
2: This is from David Hernandez, D. Hernan underscore. How big of a concern is the O line depth? Which offensive player and defensive player deserves more playing time after the UNC game? All right. The O line depth, how concerning is it? It's concerning. (laughs) Um, you know, Lawrence Seymour didn't dress for the last game. He's a guy that they were very excited about when they recruited. Um, you know, I figured you would have probably seen him somewhere in that interior line rotation. Is he healthy this week? Is he practicing? I don't know. None of us are allowed to go out to practice anymore. Um, to watch anything to to it take sounds like, sounds like it's your <laughs>
0: fault. Sounds like it's your fault, Manny. What did you do?
2: <laughs> I did nothing. Um That's that's, you know, hurting them. Um I think Logan Sagapolu and um uh, Jonathan Dennis, they're second and third year players that are just playing for the first time in their careers. That's not good. They're not going to look great. Um, They're not going to get the same push. There's a reason Ja'Kai Clark and uh, who else did they have in there? Uh, Justice right, who was terrible in pass protection. um, Why those guys were in there? Um, Because they're just not as strong physically i think as as those two guys. So it'll be interesting to see. I think it's a concern. Yes, absolutely 100%. I think they can't afford to lose anybody else. We don't know if Zion's playing this week. We don't know if JaKai Clark is back. Uh I, I'm pretty confident Olo soon will not be back. Uh so we'll see we'll see how they sort of handle it, David. And then it's free do you want to answer that question? Then we'll get to the offensive and defensive player. Was
0: well, it well we pretty much answered it together, but was it any second half of it or no?
2: Yeah, the second half was which offensive and defensive player deserves more playing time after the UNC game?
0: Uh, To me, offensive player is is pretty clear it's Colby Young. I mean, we talked about Colby Young once they landed him in the summer. We thought he could be a red zone threat. I mean, early on in the season, after game one, game two, we felt like maybe they should use this guy at least in goal line situations to just jump ball it to him um, Mm -hmm. or at least give you a big threat near the goal line. And and it's nice to see him get in the game, but why the hell did it take so long? I mean, I know you responded to a Twitter question uh, along the same lines. Uh, of this, and and the answer was, well, you know, down here in July, it took him on to the linear. I mean, for a certain package, if you have a package for a guy, like a goal line package right. where you run two to three routes, and your only responsibility is go get the football, I think you can handle that. And I think it was a little head-scratching for me why they didn't put him in earlier and have him in sort that sort of a package. If they had done that in the goal line stand where they got stuffed uh, on fourth and two, and they had thrown a jump ball on second or third down to Colby Young, maybe they come away with a score. Um, and against Middle Tennessee, when they got stuffed, on the goal line if they had him on the goal line maybe he could throw him up throwing it up to him i'm pretty sure he could about jump somebody from middle middleton seeing on the ball so maybe that turns the game around so i think colby young definitely needs to play more as far as, as defensive guys are concerned um i i don't know if there's one guy that i'll point to that needs to play more i'll tell you one guy that i don't want to see ever again although he made a big play Keontra Smith. Keontra yeah, Smith five,
2: five missed tackles i think right against unc and yeah. uh but again, that's a linebacker position we knew would be an issue. And Wesley yeah. Beth did play more. I think it was a season high 15 snaps for him in that game from what I remember. Um, you know, they've been talking about it all year. Maybe by the midway point of the season you can start to trust them, right? It's little by little, Got it's together, a process. Probably. Yeah. And uh so maybe that's the guy I agree I agree on both of those uh counts as far as who you potentially could see more of here. Um, all right. This is from Alex Perry, a Perry 1927 on Twitter is Mario going to be able to convince recruits that they should ignore the on-field results of season. They go six and six. He's going to have to work his tail off to maintain a top 10 class. Well, I agree. I I think, you know, look the recruits right now that were there and there were a lot of them, they had more than half of their commitments and then other kids that they're targeting at the UNC game. I think the majority of the commitments and I trust Gabby on this. It's his job to talk to these guys. I don't, I don't spend nearly as much time as he does talking to them. Um,
0: and he does a great job
2: of it. His feeling is that that's not going to happen, that that nobody's ready to jump ship yet. But I will caution that an embarrassing loss or, you know, a, a terrible finish, yeah, that that definitely puts them in, in, in position to have other schools come in and swipe them. That's just the way it is, especially when you recruit kids in the state of Florida who seem to flip quite a bit. Um, but it seems to me that a lot of these guys, Look, the guys that went to IMG or or at IMG, I think those guys are all locks to come to Miami at this point. It's a it's a you know, there's NIL involved, there's other things, right, that, that play a yeah. factor nowadays. Um, so I, I think I, I don't necessarily see them losing any key people in this class.
0: Yeah, and I think it like you said, if it's a seven and five or a six and six season, but it's competitive all the way through, I think that's something you can sell to these kids where like you see how close we were in the margin of victory. Or just a play here, a play there, turns the game around and you know it flips a result. That could have been you on the field to make that difference, to get us the victory, to secure it for us. So right. imagine with your with you here, those losses turn into wins, and now we're going from six and six to ten and two. Thanks to you. Right.
2: Right. All right. This is from uh Asher Wildman on Twitter. Asher always uh is a constant reader of us. Um man, I understand the recruiting sites but please explain 20 plus years of typically the best class in the coastal and traditionally in the top 25 i refuse to believe these are the best players based on results why else do we lose to worse uh, teams coaches don't don't think so is is talent really evaluated properly and how honest are these classes lastly wasn't alonzo supposed to evaluate guys now to help with finding kids as opposed to relying on these recruiting sites um okay first of all mario his recruiting, his board, what he does, it's not based on what 247 or rivals or anybody says. Uh he does his own evaluations, he goes after his own players, and, and really Alonzo, you know, he will he he's assisting, but Alonso just got there. So like, you know, this is all <laughs> this is all moving forward, right? In terms right. of their plan and their execution here. Um, the overall aspect of the 20 plus years, um, I think I've been, been telling you guys for a long time now, you know. It, there's a difference between a top five recruiting class and everybody else, and it's the depth. It's the amount of four and five stars that you get and the amount of guys that are, quote, unquote, team players that are willing to sacrifice and wait. I think in today's world, unfortunately, um, that's a lot harder to find You know, quality guys that are going to stick and invest in the program the way they should be. I think there's a lot of selfishness. There's a lot of guys that just, I'm not playing as a first or second year player. I'm out of here. Um mm-hmm. And, and they kind of go in the tank. And so I think the mental aspect of it, that's the one thing the recruiting websites don't factor into any of this. It's always height, weight, yep. and talent and hype. Um, but there's, there's such an important factor, which is the coachable factor.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's when you uh, watch the U Part 2 documentary and they talk about how Butch Davis was able to get all this collection of talent together, especially during the times where the, the team was struggling and the sanctions were on. One of the things they talked about was that he used a sports psychologist to identify the profile of player that would best fit within his program and lead to success. So it's not, you know, something foreign that you have to recruit the right type of guy personality-wise and character-wise, uh, not just talent-wise, because sometimes you could be an amazing athlete, but if you're an asshole and you don't want to listen, that's not going to work either. Um, and as we've seen, this is only Mario's first recruiting class, and he jumped on late, uh, didn't have a chance to really fill out the board, and his his recruiting strategy as, we've, as you've talked about, is about building long-term relationships with kids, and he hasn't been able to do that just yet. So I think after year three, you'll see a really, really good picture of what it is Mario's going to bring on in terms of recruiting. And again, Alonzo Heisman hasn't been able to help with that just yet. I think the other thing that, that leads to what you're talking about with, with overrating guys is there's that South Florida boost, right? I mean, I think you get an extra yeah. couple points just for being from South Florida. And, it, it, and maybe if you were compared to somebody else that maybe is equal talent, You'll get rated a little higher because of that, and I also think the the onset of seven on seven has helped create superstars out of guys that aren't necessarily um, as talented when you put the pads on and you have contact. And we've seen that over the years. I mean, it's there's it, it seven on seven has its place, but at the same time, a lot of people put way too much stock into that um, with guys playing in t-shirts and shorts or really skin tight biker shorts and skin tight t-shirts. Um, <laughs> And, and not really seeing the film and seeing what a guy is like when, when there's pads on and there's content.
2: Um, I agree with all that, I and mean, those are all excellent points, Carlos. Um, all right, this is from Brian Haley, underscore Brian Haley on Twitter. Given TBD's slow start this year, do you guys think he comes back for another year? And if so, what does that mean for Jake Garcia and the quarterback room? Huge question, huge storyline going forward, right? Um, I, I think Tyler Van Dyke, based on what he did against North Carolina, if, if you were to tell me right now, what do I think happens the rest of the season? I think he puts up a quality season and I think he enters the pros. Um, I don't think they're going to face many defenses that are tough down the stretch that he can't put up some numbers against besides Clemson. Right. So I, I could picture a 25 touchdown, 3000 yards, um, you know, seven receptions. Seven picks, eight picks, whatever it is. And he goes and and you know, the NFL tells him, Yeah, come out, you're gonna get drafted. I I think there's such a need for arms in the NFL right now. He's got a good arm. Has he shown me enough as a quarterback to for me to believe he's gonna be successful in the NFL right now, the way that he's played? Or is he more of a system guy under Lashley? That's another question, right? Um It's a hard question to answer. I I don't know. I don't have those scouts eyes. Carlos, I don't know if you have an opinion on that, but um, just your thoughts. I don't think
0: he comes comes back either way next year. I think think he finishes out the season and either goes into the NFL or he leaves to another program, maybe SMU or somewhere else, where he feels the system fits him better to make him look even better and raise his draft stock. Um, I don't think he's comfortable in the system. Even in a game like this, where it took him two weeks to prepare and really film study, really get into it, um, he looked good, he put up numbers, but he's still inaccurate on some throws. It doesn't feel like this is the kind of offense he wants to play in, and that's difficult to watch at times. I mean, he played really well, like I said, but I think the comments he made during the week I think there was a comment that everybody was sort of jumping on where it said, Um, you know, I was meeting with Coach Ponce and Coach Gaddis more during the week, uh, to tell them what I like, what I don't like, and people were like, Why weren't they meeting before? and they skipped right. the whole part. We said the word more, mm-hmm. um and part of that is on him they probably already they already meet i can guarantee you they both meet with him already on a weekly basis to go over gameplay now if of you want to get additional if you want to get additional time in with them and and really get down to the nitty gritty of what it is that makes you feel comfortable then you got to do that bro that's on you and right. and that's that's an individual thing and i don't think he's his ability to mentally process his, process defenses right now is at the level of an nfl quarterback i think this offense will help him get there he might not see that he might be a little stubborn with it but I think this is the best offense to get prep for the pros as opposed to Lashley's offense. But if at the end of the day what he's thinking about is numbers to help rise, raise that, that draft stock, then I don't think he's going to come back either way. I think he either has a really good finish to the season uh, or if he even has a crappy one, he's going to go either to the NFL or he's going to transfer out some runs.
2: Um, I guess the last part of that question was what does it mean for the quarterback room? Yeah, I mean, I think if he were to come back, it would, it would definitely force some things to happen in terms of transfers, et cetera. Um,
0: yeah,
2: Jake would probably leave. Um, all right. This is from Danny. Hey, Mr. DJ 21 on Twitter. Is it time to see what Daryl Porter can do with more snaps? We know what we have with Tyreek Stevenson. I think he's out of position. What's up with Romelo Brinson's playing time at wide receiver? Um, I think there's no choice but to play Daryl Porter more now. Played 35 yeah. snaps in this last game is most. Um, I think part of it, again, you know, he they ran a different system at West Virginia. Once, you know, Jamila Dye left there, And went to Georgia. They, uh, you know, there's different coaches there, so whatever it is he was running at West Virginia last year, um, it's probably a little different in terms of responsibilities and so forth um, in their coverage schemes. And uh, you know, you come here, he's an outside cornerback, and they believe Tyreek is the best guy. Now Tyreek, as I mentioned earlier, I think he's dealing with a groin injury, and we don't know. You know, did he go into concussion protocol? We, you know, that's the word that. Mario used protocol. Um, is he going to play this week? I'm not sure. Um, but I liked what I saw out of Porter in thirty-five snaps.
0: Yeah, I think the the system they've gone, they they went mainly cover two in this game, and they switched into cover three. But once in a while, they they I don't think they went man at all, or maybe once or twice they went man around the goal line. But aside from that, in the open field, I didn't see it, um, and that suits him more because he's coming from a system. Remember, in the Big Twelve. They're not a manual up kind of team. The uh, conference, Big Twelve, right. plays a lot of cover four, cover mm-hmm. two. There's mm-hmm. a zone conference, and they mix it because they use a lot of odd fronts. They use a lot of three three five stacks. Um, so for him, he's feeling more comfortable in this new zone based system. He's going to look better, and I think DJ Ivy is going to look better. I think DJ Ivy played better this week than he definitely did against Middle Tennessee, and uh, allowing DJ Ivy to not have to lock on one on one with somebody is going to help the defense as a whole. But I think Daryl Porter feels more comfortable in this new system. And I think the team as a whole looked really good running it after that first half where they settled in and felt comfortable.
2: As far as Romello Brinson is concerned, uh, Brinson's been targeted six times in five games, and I'm going to click on his uh, snap count. um, If I can get to it here, but I don't think he's played a whole lot. Um, Let's see. He played one snap against North Carolina, had 60 against middle Tennessee. Seems to well, me also like saw he, something. He uh he must be a transfer portal candidate, is is my mind. Um, at this point. I think uh I think once you don't you kind of fall out of the rotation and Colby Young looks like he's probably gonna pass him. Um that's what I always sort of worry about with kids like that. But hey, listen, that's the game now. You don't play, uh most guys want to leave when they don't get those opportunities. And Romello <laughs> just not part of it. Whatever he's doing is not doing enough. Um all right, this is from Sam Knowlton um, on Twitter. I listened to the podcast while jogging across the Manhattan Bridge. Can you hype me up real quick so I can finish my workout strong? I'm leaving that to you, brother.
0: Oh, wow. This guy wants me to hype him up. There. First of all, I am feel sorry that you have to live in New York. Um, I, I really feel sorry for you. <laughs> Second of all, running across the Manhattan Bridge, uh, safety first. Make sure you don't have your wallet on you. Make sure you, all your valuables are stored away somewhere else. And have a sharp key with you in case a, uh, a mugger tries to chase you down or a homeless person tries to be. Um <laughs>
2: Wow. You want to be <laughs> pumped up, not scared. Come on, man.
0: Uh, so listen, man, I, I don't know what, what sort of thing you're into, but I would say envision yourself as Rocky running through the snow, right? Envision yourself having to face Drago. Think of yourself as Rocky in the Ferrari driving away from the mansion right after Apollo dies. And it was your fault that you didn't throw in the towel in time. And now you got to prepare to face this Russian beast, this animal who's who's pumped full of drugs and steroids and horse tranquilizers and wants nothing more than to mount your head on his wall over his fireplace. What are you going to do? Run over that bridge. Run past those peeing homeless people and muggers. Get to your house.
2: (laughs) All right. Uh, What I'll add to, to help you out there, Sam, is now close your eyes and imagine the hurricanes winning out and getting into the ACC championship game. I hope that gets you pumped up, brother. Yeah,
0: I mean, great, man. You're, you're feeding this guy fantasy. I'm trying to get this yeah. guy hyped up with some like, realistic scenarios.
2: <laughs> All right, this is from J.K. Slay on Twitter. I think this rebuild will take five to seven years. By rebuild, I mean serious contender to win a national championship. This job is a rebuild. Why, if you do, think it can be done quicker? Um, here's the only reason why it might be able to be done quicker. It's called the transfer portal. Yeah. Um, I also think that because Miami's investing big dollars into this and could potentially one out of the ACC, it might be highly motivated to spend a little more money, wherever it is, recruiting trail, NIL, coaches. Um, maybe that's why things speed up. But ultimately, I do think it's probably a five, to six, to seven year rebuild in terms of being a real championship contender. Now, it, this twelve team playoff, I think Miami could get in before that. But contender, real chance to win, yeah, might take that long. I agree. All right. This is from Animals to MIA. Mario is 64 and 63 on Twitter. Manny, 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 he's 64 and 63 overall as a head coach. What all of a sudden he's going to win 100 straight games? Laughing emoji. He's mediocre. Been saying this. Great recruiter. That's about it. That's his take. Agree or disagree?
0: Yeah, sixty-four and sixty-three. How many of those losses came in an FIU program that was a dumpster fire when he took it over? Um, he then took that program to two bowl games and won a bowl game there. He came into an Oregon program after leaving Alabama, where he learned under the arguably the greatest uh, college football coach of all time, and worked. Took over a program with uh, God Willie Taggart that went four and eight the season before. They got it to seven and five, seven and six. He took it over. It went to eight or nine wins, I think it was, right away. One of roll. Bowl. Two-pack, 12 titles. One-pack, two-pack, 12 titles. So, yeah, I mean, if you're going to focus on his FIU record, sure, it looks pretty shitty. But, I mean, if you look at the rest of his resume, I think it's pretty impressive. And I think his recruiting prowess is undenied. Not everybody's a great game-day coach. They were talking about Kirby Smart being a bumbling buffoon before he won the national championship. Come on. I mean, how many times did they want to fire Jimmy Johnson before before he won a national title? How many times did they want to fire Butch Davis before he assembled that team that won the title eventually in 2001 and before they had that run in 2000? So, I mean, everything looks like shit until it doesn't. And I think the potential for this, the ceiling for this, is a lot higher than the floor. All
2: right. This is from Jay Jackson, MattyJ06 on Twitter. Do you see this season finishing more reminiscent of the first year of Manny Diaz or the first year of Rick. Rick turned the corner and went five and zero after a four game losing skid. Ended up winning fifteen in a row into twenty seventeen. Meanwhile, the wheels fell off for Diaz, losing the FIU, Georgia Tech, and Louisiana Tech. It's hard to say right now, Jay, because I feel like this locker room—you never know what you're going to get. So it's literally like the box of chocolates the Forrest Gump is carrying today' Yes, movie reference. Manny threw um, a movie reference.
0: <laughs> Have <laughs> you had that at home in a wide right bingo? Take a shot right now.
2: <laughs> um, but I would I, based on what I saw Saturday, based on my conversations with people at Miami, I'm more willing to think that they end the season strong than with a flop.
0: I agree. I think it'll be closer to what Rick's uh, first season was than Manny's. I don't see them really off an undefeated season the rest of the way. I don't think they would be Clemson. But if they really turn this thing around, they could finish with one loss the rest of the way and
2: finish 8-4. And Andrew V underscore 17 on Twitter. Do you feel better about the Canes moving forward after how they looked against UNC? Yes. Are you encouraged yes. about the wide receivers? I don't know if I'm encouraged by the wide receivers, but I feel better that Colby Young has made an appearance and being 6'5", oh. 215 pounds um, and a good – it seems like he's got good hands. I uh, think that'll help.
0: Which, which is, you know, what I put in my bio in high school. 6'5", 215, good hands, ladies. Um,
2: <laughs> but that was for women, right? Not for um, football.
0: <laughs> I was I was still catching passes. Um, so, to me, I think it's encouraging that Rashard Smith stepped up this week. I think he had a really good game. I think Rashard Smith made some plays. Um, you know, obviously, I think Will Mallory had a really good game, which we should, although he's not a wide receiver, we include him in the passing game because he's a big part of that. I think Jaleel Skinner. Um, is going to be a big part of the passing game moving forward. He looked really good, although he made that play at the end where he couldn't get out of bounds. I think he looked really athletic, uh, and he has every time he stepped on the field. I think he's a mismatch. Um, I think, you know, you found something a little bit in Frank Ladson. You've understood that he is not a vertical threat. He's a possession guy, and as long as you throw it to him within 8 to 15 yards of the line of scrimmage, he's probably going to come down with it. You don't want to throw him a jump ball because, as we saw at the end, even though it was a contested catch, and that play ended in a penalty, so it didn't count, that that ball to him in the back of the end zone uh, down the sideline couldn't come up with it he's not that kind of guy but he is solid in terms of a possession receiver i think um to me i think it was a little bit disappointing that Keyshawn smith only got 26 snaps. i think it was i thought you know he's he's the most explosive wide receiver right now and i think he needs to be treated as their number one guy because of his his, explos- his explosiveness and try to get him vertically more
2: banged up a little on special teams i saw that with my own eyes and tracked him when he went into the injury okay. i think maybe the part of it was Take him off that shit. yeah yeah um, all right, that's going to wrap it up for this episode, Carlos. I think I may come back with Andy Bitter at some point this week. I don't know if you if you checked out the last episode with Andy when we did sort of an ACC uh, preview. Uh, we do the ACC mailbag every single week, and, and Andy and I answer the questions for that at the Athletic. Um, we will have a roundtable previewing Miami, Virginia Tech, two and three versus two and four. The game everybody wants to watch this weekend. Yeah, let me Ray tell you Sports. something. If,
0: if, if Miami wins, Virginia Tech slips to what two and two and five. Yeah. Uh, and he needs to start another podcast and call it bitter and bourbon.
2: <laughs> I will let him know about that, Carlos. Uh, well, make sure you check out all of Carlos's work at the MIA all day podcast. He does terrific job there. He saves his best stuff really for his podcast, not mine, which I, don't, I can't blame him. You know, I mean, he's got so much good stuff that he can bring a lot of great stuff to mind and still have even better for his. So make sure you listen to his podcast as well.
0: And watch it on YouTube. I'm, I'm putting my stuff up on YouTube now, too. I, I actually did a PowerPoint for last week. Um, I gave some keys to the game, which were dead-on except for one fact, which I thought the Hurricanes could run for 250 yards against North Carolina. Josh Gaddis thought so, too, at the beginning of the game, and both of us were wrong.
2: <laughs> I, I knew they couldn't, but hey, why, why am I bragging about that? Carlos, thanks, as always. Uh, Miami plays Virginia Tech, 1230, Saturday. Again, hopefully have another podcast before then. If not, We will talk to you after my trip to Blacksburg. Oh, one more thing. Go ahead. Monday Monday night,
0: live taping the Wide Ride podcast at the Garrison Tap Room in Miami Lakes. There you
2: go. Thank you for reminding me.
0: uh, Yeah, we're going to start doing live. uh, Well, not live, but we're going to be recording our (laughs) podcast, you know, apropos at a bar to be able to drink away the season. And uh, if you guys want to come by, stop by, ask live questions. We're going to be there recording it. Miami Lakes. It's called the, again, the Garrison Tap Room in Main Street in Miami Lakes. It's a great little place, over 100 beers, great Canes bar. Uh, the owner's a huge Canes fan. And he wants to make it sort of like the Canes hub for all Canes fans in, in the Miami Lakes and in Northwest State area. All
2: right. Thank you for that. Thank you for the, for the uh, preview. There will be stuff shared on social media as well as a reminder. All right. That wraps it up for the Wide Ride Podcast. For Carlos Ledo, I'm Manny Navarro of The Athletic. We'll see you next week.